Lord willing, Katie will ask you to share after the message here today, if you would, just share your testimony, because I don't know how well we're going to be able to hear over at the Berries. So um, we'll plan on that. Zechariah, and um, we'll start reading in chapter 13, verses 7 to 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Let's pray once again. Father, we come to you this morning, ask you that you'd forgive us and cleanse us of every sin. Fill us with faith and with your Holy Spirit. And make your word real to us today. We pray that you'd advance your purposes today, that you'd save your people, and that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been considering for the past months now what might be called the gospel according to Zechariah. Uh, this man, Zechariah, lived, well, when did he live? About, approximately. When was this book written? 500 B.C., 500 years before Christ. And yet, even though he lived 500 years before Christ, Nevertheless, over and over in the book of Zechariah, uh, we have seen that his main theme is the Lord Jesus Christ, 500 years before he was born. In verse 1 of this same chapter, uh, chapter 13, he talks about a day when a fountain will be opened for sin and uncleanness. What an amazing thing this is. To think that there would be such a thing as a fountain where your sin and your uncleanness can be removed. And he says that's going to happen in that day that he's looking forward and referring to. And back in chapter 12 and verse 10, we saw how that uh, he spoke of a day that was coming when God would pour out His Spirit on uh, the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that they would look on Me whom they have pierced. And we read in the New Testament that that referred to what happened on the cross. And the Holy Spirit was poured out, particularly beginning of fulfillment of this. Well, there's several fulfillments, but one of the main fulfillments, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and 3,000 people realized what they had done to the Messiah. They realized that they had crucified the Lord of glory. And they cried out with weeping, with tears. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And... Uh, so the beginning of the fulfillment of, the, of this passage, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. So again, 
the gospel according to Zechariah, 500 years before the Messiah came, God uh, foretells through Zechariah that Christ is going to be crucified and that the Holy Spirit will be poured out in conviction of sin. And then what we looked at last time in verse 7, <clears throat> what we just read uh, today, um, verse 7 we saw uh, once again the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Uh, and we saw that uh, the Lord quotes this verse directly on the very eve of His crucifixion as referring to Him. This is referring again to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just read it again for the sake of those who weren't here last week. In Matthew chapter 26... And verse 30, it says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and then he quotes from Zechariah, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And so we have no need whatsoever to doubt as to whom this prophecy is referring it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ now we looked last time at the first part then back in Zechariah 13 we looked at the first part of verse 7 down to uh, about halfway through the verse down to the striking of the shepherd and we saw some amazing things first of all God speaks of this shepherd as a man he says awake O sword against my shepherd against the man, my associate. So he speaks of him as a man, and not only a man, but the man. And the Lord Jesus Christ was the perfect man. You remember Pilate stands there and he says, Behold the man. And not realizing what he was doing, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. He was the man. But God also speaks of him as my associate or my fellow, one who is on par with me. And you remember the Lord Jesus right there in John 10 where he talks about himself being the good shepherd. He says, I and the Father are one. So we have on the one hand the humanity of Christ, on the other hand the deity of Christ. He was fully God and fully man. There in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, the, the one who was His associate, His fellow, His equal. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what? The one who was God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a man. So He was truly man, and He was truly God. But then secondly, we saw the amazing fact that it was God who called for this sword upon the shepherd. It wasn't just the idea that uh, the Romans or the Jews were crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but God was the one who calls for this sword upon the shepherd. Notice this in verse 7. God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Wicked men and demonic powers did their worst against the Lord Jesus Christ, but behind it all, God was the one who was calling for this sword. And in the end, they were only carrying out God's perfect plan for what would occur. You remember what Peter says in Acts chapter 4? He says, Truly in this city were gathered together both Herod and Pontius Pilate. They were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus whom thou didst anoint. Now look at all these people gathering together against Christ. Thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, everybody gathering together against God and against His Christ. And then what's he say? To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So ultimately, it wasn't men that were smiting Christ. It was God ultimately behind everything. He's the one that called for the sword. He said, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. So God was working out through the actions of these wicked men His perfect plan in relation to Christ. But even deeper than that, uh, we saw uh, in Matthew 26 that when Jesus quotes this verse, He changes it a little bit. And He says, God speaking, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So not only were wicked men fulfilling God's purpose, but ultimately God was the one smiting the shepherd. God was doing something. Uh, The real suffering of the cross was not what men were doing to Christ. The real suffering of the cross was the fact that God was pouring out His wrath upon uh, this shepherd. Uh, All the wrath that should have been for our sins was being poured out upon the shepherd. When the Lord Jesus Christ sweat drops of blood he, in, in the garden before He was crucified, it was not because He was afraid of the cross. There's a lot of, a lot of Christians, even a lot of women that have died worse deaths than just being crucified down through church history. And they didn't sweat drops of blood facing that. But Jesus, when He is facing what's coming, He's sweating drops of blood in the garden. Why? Well, He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. What cup? The cup of God's wrath poured out upon sin. Not the nails on the cross. The Bible makes relatively little of the physical sufferings of Christ. Relatively little. For example, it says that Pilate took Him and had Him scourged. Or they took him and had him scourged. That is one sentence. But it makes a lot about the spiritual agonies of Christ. There in the garden, Now is my soul exceedingly sorrowful unto death. He was about to die before the cross. Because of what? The fact that he's getting ready to bear the wrath of God against sin. And so, not only does God call for the sword, but God wheels the sword. And it's a sword, the big sword was a sword of justice, of judgment upon sin. Why did he do such a thing? Well, because God cannot forgive sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug, can't just forget about it. 
He's a righteous judge. You come before a righteous judge and you're a murderer, you're a multiple murderer, you're a serial killer. If he's a righteous judge, he can't just say, oh, I forgive you, forget it, you're free. He can't do that. Justice has to be satisfied. He can't say, well, I'm a very gracious, loving judge. Don't worry about it. No, that won't work. He can't do that because he's righteous. So justice has to be satisfied, and the only way it can be satisfied other than you going to hell and me going to hell is for him to step in and take the place and carry that justice, that wrath that belongs to us. And so the first part then of verse 7 that we looked at last week, he is a man, he's God, and God is the one that calls for the sword, and God is the one that wields the sword against his shepherd. Now, uh, that's how far we've come. But uh, Lord willing, we want to go on today and uh, uh, continue. We won't make it quite all the way through, but we continue in verse 7. And notice the next thing, right? We've come right up to the first part of uh, uh, strike the shepherd. But we didn't continue that sentence. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And that's where we want to begin today. Um, When Jesus quotes this verse in the New Testament, it's in the context of the scattering of the sheep. You remember that? He says to the disciples, right there on the eve of the crucifixion, He says to the disciples, you're all going to be scattered. You're all going to forsake Me and flee. Why, how does he know that? Well, he quotes this verse, for it's written, it is written, I will, I will strike the shepherd, and what? The sheep will be scattered. So that's the context in which Jesus quoted this, the scattering of the sheep. And you remember, every one of the disciples, they said, Lord, first of all, Peter, he said, Lord, even though all deny you, I won't do that. I'm not going to deny you. I won't forsake you. I'll follow you to the death. And then it says, every one of the disciples said the same thing. And what happened? Every one of the disciples forsook him and fled. They all failed in the hour of test. In fact, he took three of them, the inner circle, with him to pray in the garden, and they couldn't even stay awake during the prayer meeting. They, and, and then when the trial came, they all forsook him and fled. Now, <clears throat> isn't it a comfort to know that if you are a true child of God, God's love for you does not depend upon your performance. His love for you does not depend upon your performance. Every one of the disciples was just on the brink. When Jesus quoted this verse that, that we read there in the New Testament, every one of them was just on the brink of miserably failing Him. And yet He knew all about it ahead of time, and it didn't change one iota His purpose or plan for them. You see that? He knew all about it. It didn't change His love for them, and it didn't change His ultimate plan for using them. What a blessed thing this is. In John 13, there in the upper room, it says, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end, to the uttermost. Now, that is in the context. There in the upper room, you remember when he washed the disciples' feet and so on? He knew then that they were all going to betray him. And he loved them to the uttermost, even though he already knew how weak and how sinful they were. 
even knowing what they were going to do, he still chose them. Even knowing what they were going to do, he still washed their feet. And even knowing what they were going to do, he continued on in perfect uh, love and perfect authority with what he had planned for their lives. What a blessed thing this is. Now think about this. Our sinfulness is often a surprise to us. But it's never a surprise to God. Our sinfulness is never a surprise to God. And I'm glad that that's the case. Otherwise, you know, if he was as shocked as we are sometimes when we find out how bad we are, he'd get rid of us. But he's not. He knew all of that. He knew what you were going to do. He knew how weak you were. Uh, far more than you realize it even now. He knows how sinful we are, and it didn't change anything about his calling us and his purpose to save us. Well, the scattering of the sheep has its initial fulfillment then in uh, the disciples forsaking him and fleeing. And so when God smote the shepherd, the sheep were scattered. That's often what happens. Whenever a shepherd is smitten, the sheep are scattered. And it's only God that uh, sustains the sheep in a time like that. And He did. He sustained them and brought them back. But in a broader sense, that was the beginning. That was the initial fulfillment. But in a broader sense, I think He's talking about the whole flock of Israel here, the Jewish nation. And um, I say that for two reasons. First of all, because... Uh, God Himself goes on right in this verse and talks about turning His hand against the little ones. And in the next verse, He talks about the destruction of the vast majority of the flock. Alright? He says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Now I say, I think He's talking in a broader way about the Jewish nation. Why do we say that? Well, look back in chapter 11, and those of you that were here when we were speaking through chapter 11, I hope will remember this. In verse 4, the good shepherd shepherds the flock that is doomed to slaughter. You remember that? Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. And he goes on down through here and tells about pasturing this flock that's doomed to slaughter. And finally, in verse 12 and 13, they weigh out 30 shekels of silver as his wages. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces, the 30 shekels of silver, and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And if you remember, if you were here, I was talking about, and these verses are quoted again, it's talking about, the selling of Jesus for 30 shekels of silver, the valuation that the Jews placed on him, and his denial by Judas, and then Judas took that money and threw it in the, in the temple. He threw it back to the priests, and what? The money was used to buy the potter's field. So here, of all things, he's throwing the money to the potter, even though he did it in the house of the Lord. Fulfillment of prophecy. But the thing I want us to get is this. When Jesus came into the world, He shepherded and pastured this flock of Judaism, the vast 
number of Jews, even though it was a flock doomed to slaughter, most of those people were going to be destroyed. Most of them were going to reject him. Just a few of them were going to be saved. Most of them, by and large, rejected their Messiah. And what happened to them? They were, they were given over to destruction. And that's what God says again here in chapter 13. He says what's going to happen in all the land, verse 8, two parts in it will be cut off and perish. The majority of them, the big group, will be destroyed. And so when it says, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, that had an initial fulfillment in the disciples. But in a larger sense, what happened? The Jews rejected their Messiah. And when the shepherd was smitten... The sheep were scattered. God turned His hand against the flock, the little ones. He turned His hand against them and He destroyed the majority of them. Now that happened historically when? A.D. 70, it happened. It happened about 40 years after the crucifixion. And you remember, one day when Jesus was uh, still with the disciples, they were going out and they said, Lord, look at all these beautiful stones and these magnificent stones in this temple. He said, I'm telling you, a day's coming when not one stone will be left on top of the other. That was fulfilled 40 years later in the destruction of Jerusalem. And what happened was millions, literally, of Jews were there gathered in the city for the Passover. And everybody, you know, gathers together there and the Roman armies came in under Titus and surrounded them and it was a horrible destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, If you ever read the accounts of what happened there, it was a terrible thing. And um, uh, people, they starved them out, first of all, and then they came in and slaughtered them. Uh, Amazing, the judgment of God upon this flock. Now, isn't this something? Jesus was shepherding a flock when He came here among the Jews. And He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. He did everything toward them that a good shepherd would do toward sheep. He ministered to them. He taught them the truth. He healed their sick and so on, and they rejected Him and valued Him at 30 pieces of silver. And as a result of that, the flock was scattered. God turned His hand against them. And as a nation, they were judged. But what I want us to concentrate on today is not that part, but the third part that's left. Verse 8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. The majority would be destroyed, but a minority, a remnant, would be saved. And the question comes up, who is this remnant? Now stay with me on this. Keep your place in Zechariah 13, and we'll go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 27. Paul is quoting the Old Testament here again, and he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly, just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth, 
had left us a seed, a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now think about this. God almost wiped out the whole nation. And He would have been right to do so because of all their sins against Him. He would, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But in mercy, God preserved a seed. He preserved a remnant. He left a remnant alive. And that remnant, who was that remnant? Well, it was those that believed on the Messiah. There were, there were 3,000 even on the day of Pentecost. You see, that was a remnant of Israel. All those people on the day of Pentecost were Jews. And Paul was a Jew, and all the disciples were Jews. There was a remnant who was saved that was left. But the vast majority, just like the Bible said, were wiped out. And uh, when Paul wrote this in Romans, it was actually before A.D. 70, and uh, the physical destruction hadn't even come yet, but spiritually they were left out, and this seed and remnant was saved. So, in other words, the Christians. Now let's just... uh, Turn to another passage in Luke chapter 21. I'll try to, we'll read these things and I'll try to tie this together. Luke 21 and verse 20. <clears throat> but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. One of the things that was written was what we see back there in Zechariah. These are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. The Jews were scattered out after that time in A.D. 70, scattered all over the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, here's what I want to bring out. In A.D. 70, when Titus surrounded Jerusalem... The Christians remembered what their Lord had said. This is historical fact. They remembered. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out. The Christians that were in Jerusalem remembered that, and they fled, and they were spared. That's what happened. The Christians got out of there, and the ones who were on the outside didn't go in there because they remembered what the Lord had said. It had only been 40 years before that He had said this. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he, they saw that and they were spared. Now, think about this. Two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left. And that's what happened. That remnant was saved and brought out. The mercy and kindness of God toward this seed and remnant in sparing them when others are destroyed. Now, how do you become a part of the remnant? Well, one more verse in the New Testament here. Romans chapter 11. Paul talks again about this group that was spared. Verse 
I say then, God has not rejected, this is verse 1, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God, Paul says, I'm a Jew and I've become a Christian. God hasn't totally rejected His people. Verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have turned out, torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, what was happening? It looked like in the days of Elijah that everybody had turned against the Lord. And God says, no, I have reserved. You don't know about everybody, Elijah. I have reserved. I've kept them for myself. 7,000. Even at that time in Israel's history, he kept 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. How do you get to be part of that remnant? A remnant according to God's gracious choice, or choice of grace, literally. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So, the way the Apostle Paul, for example, what kept him from being a blasphemer and going on the rest of his life like that? God did. He reserved Paul. He, he chose him by grace to be a part of that remnant who was saved. Well, back to Zechariah 13. <clears throat> you say, I'm really glad that uh, I'm part of that remnant. I'm a Christian. I'm glad I'm part of that remnant. I'm glad Christians don't have to suffer. Well, that's we got to go on and read the next verse, don't we? <laughs> This is what God says. The third part He's going to spare, but this is what He says. Verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire. What an amazing statement this is. Every Christian, every child of God has to face the fire. I will bring the third part through the fire. Even God's true people. But notice, it's not a fire of wrath and judgment. It's a fire of refining and purifying. He says, verse 9, I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. Peter talks about the very same thing. He says the trying, the testing, he says right now you're heavy through all these manifold testings and temptations and trials. That the trying or trial of your faith Though it, though it, it's much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the, at the appearing of Christ. So here is your faith being tried. What, is it, what are these tribulations and persecutions? It's your faith being tried by fire like gold and silver, like he says here in Zechariah, like gold and silver is tested. So this is not a fire of wrath and judgment. It's a fire of refining and of grace and of purification. What does this picture of refining speak of? And if you've 
If you've heard uh, the teaching that I've given on understanding tribulations, you, maybe you remember some of this. Think of refining gold and silver. That's what God says He's going to do to His people. What does that speak of? Well, it tells us right off the bat something about how precious Christians are to God. How does He view the Christian? He doesn't view the Christian as dirt. He views the Christian as gold and silver. And so the big thing we need to remember when we're having to pass through the fire, it's not an evidence that God thinks that I'm dirt. It's an evidence that God thinks that I'm gold and silver. That's the first thing to get from this picture of the refining. He says, I'm going to bring that third part through the fire and I'll refine them like gold is refined. So the first thing to remember, this thing that I'm going through means that God thinks that I'm silver. He thinks that I'm gold. So the preciousness of the believer in the sight of God. Uh, But secondly, uh, the painfulness, it speaks about the painfulness of the process. This is a blast furnace. And you put this metal into a blast furnace. I, I have seen, I've been around a blast furnace two or three times. There, uh, there's one in Romania that we go to see quite a bit when we're there because it's down where they sell all these glass works. And uh, this guy puts the glass into that furnace. I mean, it is so hot inside a blast furnace. You, it's scary to even look in there from 10 feet away. Much less be put in there. And we're talking about melting glass. But here he talks about refining silver and gold. So God looks upon His people. You know, this He could have wiped out the whole nation. But instead, He brings out a third for Himself. He reserves them by grace. And He loves them and values them so much. He says, they're like silver and gold to me. I'm going to put them in the fire. And I'll put them into the blast furnace. Now, the painfulness of the process. That thing is put into that furnace and melted down. And uh, if you think about this, think of what this must have meant to the early church. You remember the first 300 years of church history. The first 300 years of church history, they were burning Christians as torches in their garden parties. That's literally true. Nero did that. Put the dip the Christians in tar, hang them up, and light them to light their parties. There were wave after wave of persecution of Christians in the early church. And you know what happened? The early church was on fire and alive and full of the power of God and purified and expanding to where Christianity reached the Roman uh, reached all the way up to, to England by the year 100. It's unbelievable the power that was upon the early church. But think if you were a Christian living in under the midst of one of those persecutions and you read this in Zechariah. And you remembered the destruction of Jerusalem and how you got out of there whenever the armies came. And, uh, you know, you read what it says. God says, I'm going to take this third part and I'll bring them through the fire. The painfulness of the process, like a blast furnace. And not just the first three centuries of church history, but even now in our day, more people 
dying today as Christians around the world than there was then. And not just, here's another thing, not just physical sufferings are talked about here, but a lot of times spiritual agonies that people are put through as, as believers are worse than physical sufferings. The painfulness of being put in that blast furnace. Why would God do such a thing? Well, for the goal in view. And that's the third thing that we see here. Why does, why does He put the silver in the blast furnace? He does it in order to get the dross out and to purify it and to refine it. You know, we have refineries nowadays for all kinds of stuff. And you take the crude, you know, the crude and then refine it. That's what God does. He refines so the goal in view is purity and freedom from dross. <clears throat> that song we sang, the flame shall not harm you. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And that's what God does in these fiery trials. Um, I was telling the college students a week or two ago about, uh, or maybe it was last week, about... Uh, one time when uh, Dick and I were living together, and I don't know, were you, had you gone home for the weekend or something? Do you remember when I melted all that lead down on the kitchen stove? <laughs> I learned later about, uh, about lead poisoning. <laughs> they say a lot of plumbers get lead poisoning because it used to, you know, the word plumber comes from the Latin word for lead. And uh, plumbers are called plumbers because they use lead, and they melt the lead down. And they used to, and melt the lead down and put it around the pipes to uh, seal the pipes. And a lot of plumbers, I learned after I had done this crazy thing, get lead poisoning from boiling that lead. But anyway, uh, I went and bought, I wanted to make a set of weights, and I wanted them to be nice and compact because lead is very dense. And so I went and got scrap lead. Well, scrap lead has got a lot of dross, dirty. And uh, I did put a fan in the kitchen window, but it was pretty smelly. But anyway, it is amazing when you heat lead up and you bit all this scum begins to come to the top, black stuff. And I'd scrape that off with a fork. And uh, when you heat lead up, even lead is beautiful. It's just just like silver whenever you get it heated up. Very nice when you get all that scum off. And um, I heated that lead up and I skimmed that off. Maybe the Lord allowed that. I think he did just so I could learn a little bit about what this is like. When you first begin to heat it up and it melts down, it does not look prettier. It looks worse. And when you get put in the furnace you don't think you're getting holier you think you're getting worse you start reacting in different ways and you find out all the stuff that was in you but the purpose of that is so he can skim that off and purify and cleanse and refine and that's the goal that God has in view now isn't this something? He says, I will bring the third part through the fire. He doesn't say, I'll throw them in the fire. I'll bring them through. I'm glad for that word through, aren't you? <laughs> I'll bring them through the fire. 
Uh, he doesn't say, I'll leave them in the fire. He says, I'll bring them through the fire. The process will be done. And in closing, let's look at a few verses on this. Psalm 119. God talks about this. Psalm 119, <coughs> verse 67. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But what now? Now I keep thy word. So there was a refining, an affliction that he went through that brought him to a place where he kept God's word. And... Uh, in verse 68, he says, Thou art good and doest good. That's his response ultimately after that trial was over. And then in verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Well, it doesn't seem good at the time, but looking back, you can say it was good. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. That's a result of what he went through. God's word became precious to him. Uh, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous, <clears throat> and that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. It's because God cares about you. It's in his faithfulness that he afflicts us. O may thy loving kindness comfort me according to thy word, to thy servant. May thy compassion come to me that I may live, for thy law is my delight. So there's one man's testimony. Then in Malachi, another Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming of Christ. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3 and verse 1, he says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. You remember that refers to John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But then verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now that's the result in the Christian's life. He uses the trials. And beloved, if there aren't any... There's no fire. There's no purifying. That's a bad sign. That's a sign that you're not really a child of God because this is true of everybody. He will purify them, refine them like gold and silver so that, here's the end result, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And then one more passage, Psalm 66. <clears throat> Psalm 66 
verses 8 to 12. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound His praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. Now that's talking about victory in the midst of tribulation because look at verse 10. For Thou hast tried us, O God, Thou hast refined us as silver is refined. How did He do it? Verse 11. Thou didst bring us into the net. Thou didst lay an oppressive burden upon our loins. Thou didst make men right over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but what? Yet Thou didst bring us out. We went through, didn't stay in, we went through fire and through water, yet Thou didst bring us out into a place of abundance. I will come into Thy house with burnt offerings and so on. Thou didst bring us out. He brought about the finished result. Now, we don't have time to do it today, but Lord willing, next week we'll go on and look at this result in the remainder of verse 9. Not next week, but two weeks. Um, the result of His refining, God says in verse 9 of Zechariah 13, they will call on My name. That's comforting, isn't it? As a Christian, when God puts you through the fire, doesn't say they will fall away. He says they will call on My name. That's going to happen. And I will answer them. I will say they are My people. God will own up and own that you are one of His. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next time. Well, when the shepherd was smitten, Israel as a whole was judged. And God turned His hand against them and destroyed most of them. But he did save a remnant, and that remnant he has put through the fire and continues to put through the fire to refine them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that our purification is not in our hands, but it's in Your hands. Thank You so much that You promised that You would purify Your people and that You would refine Your people and that Your refining process would do the job. And Lord, um, we're so grateful that we're in Your hands. Whatever fire, whatever trial, whatever furnace we're facing, Lord, we pray that you would sustain us and keep us in life and enable us to triumph in the midst of tribulation, difficulties, trials, knowing the result that you're going to accomplish. Pray for your good hand upon us here in the remainder of this time and our time together in the meal and at the baptism. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If everybody could stretch, and we're going to have Katie go ahead and stand and stretch, and we'll have Katie come up and share her testimony. I don't think it'll be longer than an hour.